You may open your Bibles to our first example in the second assembly to 1 Samuel 17. While you're turning there, let me say briefly about the Titanic. And it is a wonderful story of mouths being lifted up against the Most High God and the Lord ruining that ship and the men that spoke about it being unsinkable on its very maiden voyage. A maiden being a virgin, that was its first trip. That ship had 16 watertight compartments that they thought made it unsinkable. They knew that only if, that it, it could stay afloat if four of its watertight compartments were flooded. Well, the Lord, with that iceberg beneath the water line, just drew a crease along the side of that ship in five compartments. Within minutes, the captain of that ship knew because the president of the White Star ship line was on board and an engineer, within minutes, they calculated to the minute that it would founder. Because you got to understand that engineers had done tests on that boat repeatedly over and over in just a minute, scratching it out on paper, knowing which water state compartments were filled and, and were filling and knowing where the bulkhead was. See, the water, it tipped the boat. And the water went over the top, the, 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 the bulkhead of watertight compartment number one into two into three. And it just kept doing this. They calculated to the minute. And so the unsinkable Titanic by the, by the president of the White Star Line and by the engineers and by the captain, they knew that it was going down within minutes. It was not unsinkable at all. And just a little crease. And that's kind of amusing that just a little crease in the, Steel put that ship at the bottom. In preparing for this sermon, I've had a lot of pleasure in a lot of different directions. You know, our little book of Nahum the prophet is about the overthrow of Nineveh. And Nineveh thought that they would be a city that would stand forever because it was, it was in a place in the Tigris River that it was surrounded by water on three sides and they didn't think that anyone could ever breach the city and it was a huge city. And there's many prophecies in the Bible about Nineveh. You know, Jonah went to Nineveh, but the book of Nahum is about the overthrow of Nineveh. And the Lord wanted them to remember some famous last words of another city that was protected with a rampart, this is the Bible speaking, of the Nile River around it. Now in the Bible it's called the city of No, but in history it's called the city of Thebes of Egypt. It was considered to be an impregnable great city that would stand forever. And how the Lord wiped it out, and the Lord used that in the book of Nahum to tell the Ninevites by the prophet Nahum that they were going to be wiped out. These lessons from the Lord are to remind us that we're dealing with a very serious being in the heavens. He's God our Father, but He is God their judge. He's the creator of us all. And we want to give Him all the honor and glory due His name and that when men open their mouths to speak against Him, like even God couldn't sink this ship, He's going to do something. Like this city shall sit a queen forever. And those big cities like to say things like that. In 1 Samuel 17, it's the chapter about David and Goliath. Do we have some famous last words in this chapter? We do. My wife asked me yesterday, what is your favorite from the whole list of famous last words? And I, I picked this chapter. I like them all. So don't put too much stock into this one, but... When the big uncircumcised nine foot nine inch giant came down to meet David, he had these words for him. 
Verse 43. Am I a dog? That's, those are my famous last, that's my favorite in the whole Bible. Am I a dog? That thou comest to me with staves. Because here's David, with no unit, with no military wep, with no military armor on, running out to meet him with a staff, a sling, and his little shepherd's scrip, which is just a little bag, in which he had put five stones in case Goliath's four brothers wanted to show up. Don't think that David thought he needed five stones for Goliath. He needed five stones to wipe out the entire family tree of the giant in Gath. Because there were four brothers and they're named in the exploits of David's mighty men. Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh into the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And you know, David had a response to him about the God of heaven and what he was going to do to that Philistine. And you know the story there. He slew the giant with his sling and he went up and took the giant's huge sword and chopped his head off. And that was emphatic enough to both armies that the champion of the Philistines had been defeated. Am I a dog that you would send this little runt out here against me? Yes, you are a dog. And you're going down at the hands of David today. First Samuel chapter 25. First Samuel 25. Now we're inside the church when we go to first Samuel 25 because it's a man named Nabal, a rich man of the house of Caleb, who thought he could easily and evilly despise David. David sent some men to him when he was shearing sheep and was just awash in cash and expected profits from all the wool and asked for a little bit of food for he and his men. And Nabal, when he was confronted, had these words to say when he was asked. Here we go with some famous last words. We want to be careful how we talk. I want us to make this practical. This is really a service to rejoice in the God of heaven and what he's done to his enemies and what he's done to men who open their mouths too early and say things too foolish or too presumptuous. But we also want to guard our own mouths. Verse 10 of 1 Samuel 25, And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Samuel had anointed David to be king of Israel long before this chapter. David had killed Goliath. David was the best man that Saul ever thought of having. Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. There's lots of runaway slaves these days. David, the son of Jesse, is just one of them. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? Everyone knew why David was in the woods. He was hiding from King Saul. Famous last words. We have a whole chapter in the Bible about it. Abigail, the beautiful woman with a wise understanding mind and heart, the wife of this man, went and met David and stopped him from coming and killing everyone, every male that was there. And David listened to her wise advice. God gave that man, Nabal, the heart, a heart of stone for ten days so he got to sit around and think about the fact that his wife was going to be David's wife. And he died in ten days. Remember, no electric chair. Ten days to think about it. Right. 
10 days to think about it, that your wife went and met David and stopped him and made a pact with him and gave him all the supplies and food off of your property that he wouldn't give. As soon as he was dead, David sent his servants and proposed to her, and she agreed. Oh, who is David? Let's make sure we always honor the Lord's people. 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. David's living among the Philistines. And now the Israel's going to have a battle with the Philistines, but David's on the wrong side because David's living with the Philistines. And there's a battle going on, and he can't be there. He wanted to be there on the Philistine side so that he could wreak some havoc inside their army, but they figured that one out and told him to go home. So he had gone home. And here comes a man from the battle, an Amalekite. And this Amalekite has happened upon Saul on the battlefield who's dead with his sons and brought some of his personal belongings so that he could prove that he had indeed seen Saul dead in the battlefield. And David asks him how the battle went. And the man goes and tells him the story that I found King Saul wounded and I I slew him for you and I've got his crown and his stuff right here, my Lord. Does anybody know the heart of David? What's a man like David going to do? David had already had Saul dead to rights in a cave when he was in there to cover his feet, and he didn't kill him. One night while he was asleep, David had him dead to rights, and he didn't kill him. And now this Amalekite wants to tell him that I just killed King Saul and brought him your crown. 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 10. So I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them hither unto my Lord. I stood on King Saul. I chopped his head off. I took his crown. I ripped the, I took the bracelet off his hand. I messed with the Lord's anointed and I've brought them to you. What happened? Famous last words. David had him killed right there on the spot for touching the Lord's anointed in verses 13 through 16. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Famous last words. I stood upon him and slew him from that one. 2 Samuel 5. David was a prophet. David knew things that were very important to the Lord and they became important to David. And one of those was the city of Jerusalem, which was called Jebus in the Bible because it was a major city of the Jebusites. And the Jebusites inhabited that place. Now Melchizedek had lived there long ago and it was called Salem, the abbreviated form of Jerusalem. But to this point, it is Jebusites living there on Mount Zion. It was an impregnable stronghold. It's called the stronghold of Zion in the Bible. It was a fortress on top of seven mountains with particularly the mountain of Zion It was as it was later called by God's people. But it was impregnable. And the Jebusites had it. But David knew after seven years in Hebron where he ruled Israel, he knew that it was time to go get Jerusalem for the Lord because that was the Lord's city that the Lord wanted. And so 2 Samuel chapter 5 is about this conquest of the impregnable city of Jerusalem. And so David approaches this city, tells us in verse 5 in Hebron, David had reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned thirty and three years over all Israel and Judah. And here's the story of how they got the city. 
And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, and here's what these Jebusites said off their walls to David and his men, except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither. Thinking David cannot come in hither. This city is so impregnable, we've got lame men and blind men on the walls to protect it. And unless you can whip our lame men and blind men on the walls, you won't be able to get in. What does the next verse say? Does it say, nevertheless? What does the word nevertheless mean? Their words didn't mean diddly. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And so here are the famous last words. There in verse 6, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither. Now, those are not the ways that you relax an army. When you've got Joab down there beside David, and Joab is the one that took the city, and you say something like that, you couldn't beat the, you couldn't take this city if we put lame and blind men, and the rest of us went inside and enjoyed ourselves. And, and they took the city of Jerusalem. Because that was the Lord's city. They weren't going to have it. It was God's city. And God's men took it, called the city of David. Anyway, these wonderful stories are, the Bible's filled with them. How about the Syrians in 1 Kings chapter 20? 1 Kings chapter 20. Now the Syrians under Ben-Hadad had come and fought and been defeated. And when they went back, they figured it out. The God of the Israelites is a hill God. Remember, the Catholics have a, a saint for every single thing that you can think of. And the pagans would have a god for everything that they could think of. There were gods of hills. And so the god of Israel that defeated us Syrians must be a god of the hills. If we draw them out of their city, we'll kill them in a plane. These, the war council of Syria to Ben-Hadad. Can you imagine a cabinet and um, the chief of staff sitting down with Ben-Hadad and saying, and this is what he said, what they said, match man for man, chariot for chariot, every single thing that you lost in the first battle, match it, don't exceed it, just match it, we'll take that them on and their God in the plain. And the famous last words are in 1 Kings chapter 20, at about verse 22, The king of Israel gets an announced, you know, it wasn't fair because Israel had prophets that could tell them what was being said in the war councils of Syria. But that's what you can read in verse 22. Verse 23, And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing. Take the kings away every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms, and number thee in arm, and he goes on and gives the details. This is the war council to Ben-Hadad of how he should raise this battle. And it was a huge army. And look at, look at the description, verse 27. And the children of Israel were numbered, and were all present, and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids, little, little lambs and little uh, young goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And there came a man of God 
and explain what was going to happen. Verse 29, they pitched over one against the other seven days. And it was so, when the battle was joined, the children of Israel slew of the Syrians. This is verse 29. And 100,000 footmen in one day. 100,000 footmen in one day in the plain. Not on a hill. And the rest fled to Aphek into the city. And there a wall fell upon 20 and 7,000 of the men that were left. Can you imagine fighting in battle, watching a 100,000 men die, running for your life, getting in there, and flopping down behind a wall for protection, and the wall falls on you and kills 27,000? This is the Lord that we worship. This is our God. This is when they say their God can't help them in a plane. Their God can't help them here. Their God can't help them there. Our God can help anywhere He chooses to help. Praise His glorious name. Their gods are gods of the hills. Those are famous last words. How about the famous last words in 1 Kings 22 where Ahab said, I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me. Who did Ahab hate? Micaiah the prophet, the only prophet of Jehovah left in Israel. There were hundreds of prophets of Baal. And Jehoshaphat had joined forces with Ahab contrary to the will of God. But Jehoshaphat was there and as they were consulting prophets before they went to battle, and Jehoshaphat said, Do you have anyone here that fears the Lord? And so they brought Micaiah in, and Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, I hate him. I've got one prophet of Jehovah here. I hate him because he never says anything good to me. Those are famous last words in this way. When Micaiah got in front of King Ahab, he said, Go to battle. The Lord's given it into your hands. Now that was a lie. The prophet lied to King Ahab. Why did he lie to him? Because the prophet didn't want the truth. He wanted something good. So God gave him what he wanted. Something good, but it wasn't true. And Ahab knew that. Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, See, look at him. Now he's lying to me. Didn't I tell you to always tell me the truth? Famous last words. I hate him because he doesn't say anything good about me. Then the next famous last words in this same chapter of 1 Kings 22 are by Ahab. I will disguise myself. I will disguise myself. Jehoshaphat, you've just heard Micaiah say that I'm not going to come back from this battle. Well, I'm going to go in looking like an ordinary soldier and you're going to wear my uniform. And Jehoshaphat went for that. And so they went out to battle. And the opponents had been told, fight with no man of Israel except the king. Well, who was the king? It was Jehoshaphat in Ahab's robes. And so the whole army collapsed upon the chariots of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat yelled out, I'm not the king. And so they turned, there was confusion. So Ahab thought he was getting away with everything. And the Bible tells us that a man drew a bow at a venture. At this fleeing army, a Syrian just drew a bow at a venture and flung an arrow after that fleeing army of Israelites. And it found Ahab, and it found a joint in his armor. And it slew him. Famous last words. Well, first, you know, he didn't like the word of God against him, but he said, I will disguise myself. What good does that do? Who did get out of the battle in the robes of the, of the king of Israel? Jehoshaphat. Because the Lord loved Jehoshaphat. He was one of the four great kings of Judah. David, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Famous last words. I will disguise myself. Yes. Second Kings chapter 1. 
2 Kings chapter 1, famous last words. Do you know these words? Thou man of God, the king hath said, come down. Does the Bible story come to mind? Thou man of God, the king hath said, come down. That's the first captain of 50. Ahaziah had been told by Elisha that he wasn't going to get up off his sickbed. He had fallen through a lattice in his upper chamber, had injured himself, and he was on his bed. He sent his servants to Baal to get information about whether he was going to recover while Elisha met his servants on the way and said, save yourself the trouble. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Go back and tell your master that he's not going to get up off that sickbed. And he got there, and this was Elijah, not Elisha. Elijah. And Ahaziah said, what did he look like? Well, he was pretty straggly and wild looking. What was he wearing? A leather girt? Oh, that was Elijah. Where is he? Well, he's sitting on a hill just outside of town. Call me the captain so-and-so. And captain so-and-so with 50 men went out there and said, Thou man of God, come, the king hath said, come down. And Elijah's sitting up there. If I'm a man of God, then let their fire come down from heaven and burn you and your 50 men up. Gone. You say, this, this isn't in the Bible. It's Second Kings chapter 1. Don't you read your Bible every year? You should have read this story 50 times if you're 50 years old. Why isn't it in Bible story books? Because they want to turn out effeminate little Christian children with they don't know the whole truth of the Word of God. All these stories should be in the... They're wonderful stories. Boy is a boy. I'd have got pretty excited if I'd have had that in a Bible story book. Captain number two, come here. Go out there and get Elijah. Listen to the words of captain number two. O man of God, thus hath the king said, come down quickly. He added a word, come down quickly. You know, you didn't listen to the first one, come down. If I be a man of God, then let their fire come down from heaven and burn you and your 50 up. And fire came down from heaven the second time. The third captain had learned his lesson faster than Pharaoh, didn't he? The third captain went out there and begged for his life. O man of God, I believe that you're a man of God and you've dropped fire on the two captains that came out before you. Will you please consider coming down to me? Okay, the Lord told him, okay, go on down with him. It's a wonderful story. It's 2 Kings chapter 1. It's Elijah. He said, I just can't imagine burning up all those people. They were wicked. They were the church. They were wicked people in the church. These were not Philistines. These were not Egyptians. These were not Hittites. These were Israelites that were worshiping Baal. This is what God thinks of false religion. And if you think God's changed, just look at the church at Corinth. Because they were abusing the Lord's Supper, many were sick, many were weak, and many slept. Many had already died in the church at Corinth for abusing the worship of the holy God of heaven. So when the Bible tells us that we we should... with uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28... Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a, for our God is a consuming fire. In the New Testament, it consumed a captain in his fifty. It consumed another captain in his fifty. We want to worship God reverently. They weren't. They were worshiping Baal. That king had sent to Baal to find out whether he was going to recover or not. When he had Elijah, the Lord be praised. I love every one of these stories. This one, The next one's even harder. 2 Kings chapter 2. Here's the famous last words, and let's see if it brings anything to memory. 
Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. This is Elisha. And the Lord's confirming Elisha as the prophet of God. And he's on his way to Bethel. Bethel was called the house of God by the patriarchs because that's where they worshiped God. But Bethel had been turned into one of Jeroboam's centers for religious worship of two golden calves. These people, though they were part, they were part of Israel, the nation of God, the church of God, they had turned to Baal worship. And 42 children came out of that city and made fun of the prophet Elisha. And I want you to think about the words, go up. Who had just gone up? Elijah. They're making fun of Elisha and Elijah. Hey, bald head, why don't you show us? Why don't you go up? Where Elijah went up. Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Elisha turned and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tear 42 children. You say it's not fair. Well, there were children on the Titanic. What don't you think's fair about it? Well, no, you say they all got off in the lifeboats. Well, then what about the children in the days of the flood where there wasn't such a ridiculous rule? See, there wasn't a sign on the side of the ark that said women and children first. It was animals first. Because God destroyed the world that had set themselves against the Most High God. This is the Bible from cover to cover. The destruction of Jerusalem was horrific. And it included many children. So was the destruction of Egypt. The tenth plague upon Egypt was the killing of the firstborn in their cribs. These children were wicked children. They were making a mockery of the prophet Elisha. They were making a mockery of God's dealings with the prophet Elijah. They were worshippers of a golden calf. And God destroyed them. Their famous last words, Go up, thou bald head. That bald head turned and cursed them in the name of the Lord Jehovah. And they were torn. Second Kings chapter 7. Due to time, I'm just going to see if I can get your attention with the famous last words so that the whole story comes into vivid memory uh, for you. We're in the city of Samaria. It's been under terrible siege for a long time. They're reduced to where they're eating a cab of dove's dung and ass's heads. That's not good on a menu. When you see either one of those things on a menu, try another restaurant. A cab of dove's dung and an ass's head were what they were eating. Women were eating their children, which brought about the whole exchange. That And there was a man beside the king, after Elisha the prophet had said, I think about this time tomorrow, Grain's going to be sold for pennies a bushel. Here's the uh, words. Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And Elisha said, well, we'll see about it tomorrow. But one thing I can tell you, it's going to happen, or two things I can tell you, it's going to happen, and you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat of it. And this man that was the king's aide Saw it. Remember, it's the lepers. The lepers were outside the city wall and they said, we're starving. If we go inside, they have no food. We might as well go throw ourselves upon the mercies of the Syrians. At least they might give us something to eat. And so they go to the camp of Syria and find that they've all fled. And there's all their stuff, all their gold, all the silver. And they're digging holes and burying stuff as fast as they can. 
and their conscience started to smite them. You know, they've got a they got a big turkey a turkey leg in their in their mouth, and they're digging holes at the same time they're eating. They're just feeling so good, and they said we should go tell the city. So they went and told the city. The city came out, gathered all the the stuff because the Syrians were so frightened that they left all their stuff. There was so much grain there to feed a standing army that it reduced the price to pennies on the bushel. And the king said, Man, I want you to take care of the city gate because this is uncontrollable. Things rushing, people rushing back and forth, going in another city. So he was given charge of the gate and the people trod him under and killed him in the stampede of people going in and out of the city. And the Bible wants you to know in 2 Kings chapter 7 very carefully that the words of the prophet were fulfilled exactly as said. He saw it with his eyes. He never got to taste it. Because he said, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this happen? The Lord didn't have to make windows in heaven, but it did happen. I don't care how desperate your situation ever gets. You trust in a God that is able to reverse fortunes in one day in ways that cannot be comprehended. Amen. He's magnificent. I love our God. And you read last night in Isaiah 37, How much less shall your God deliver you out of my hand? Sennacherib, because he had defeated so many nations and their gods, felt for sure that he could defeat Judah and their God and defeat Hezekiah, their king. And the daughter of Zion laughed and scorned Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. And there's much about that particular battle in the Bible. And God in one night slew 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. And Sennacherib went home and went into the temple of his god Nisroch to find out why in the world he lost such a battle. And why he would wake up in the morning and find 185,000 dead corpses. These are Bible words. And his sons came in and killed him while he worshipped his God. This is the God we worship. These are the Bible stories that make faith great and put our trust in God so that when we pray, we know that God can reverse fortunes. Hezekiah was scared. This massive army had met no resistance in taking the nations of the area, and here they were besieging Jerusalem and threatening Jerusalem with pretty graphic language if you read the chapters about this event. But the Lord delivered. These famous last words, who said them? Who is that God that shall deliver deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 3, the fiery furnace. He had made an image and set it up as a God, a new religion in Babylon. And he said, when the praise band starts to play, I expect all of you to fall down and worship that image. Three Hebrew men wouldn't worship it. And they said, our God won't let us worship that image of yours, O king. And we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. And whether he's going to deliver us or not, we don't know, but we're not going to worship your image. Who is that God that should deliver you out of my hands? Were those famous last words in this respect? He sat back and watched the mightiest men in his army incinerated by a furnace that was heated seven times higher than the engineers thought it should be heated. Incinerated the mighty men in his army. And then... He was astonished, the Bible says. And he looked and he said, How many men did we cast into that furnace? Three, O king. I see four. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Three verses later, he explains that he saw an angel because he didn't see the Son of God because the Son of God wasn't born yet. That's a subject for another time. Jesus Christ is absolutely eternal, but he's not eternal with a human body. 
He saw an angel. He said so. Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. There was his famous last words. Who shall deliver from my hands? What God is there that can deliver from my hands? You know, Nebuchadnezzar would go on in the next chapter to say, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Does that sound humble? Daniel had begged him to show some humility that there might be a lengthening of his tranquility. And uh, his words were, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And at that hour, he was driven from men and became a beast. Babylon is described as saying, I shall be a lady forever. The city of Babylon. The city of Babylon, reading about it, is spectacular. The river Euphrates ran right through the city. It had the hanging gardens of Babylon. It had double walls with a, with a bare area in between and a moat outside supplied by the river Euphrates, which is a huge river. We don't have anything like it nearby. The city walls were very, very high, and they were so wide you could run six chariots abreast on each one. It's just an incredible city. 25 miles per side, a square. The Euphrates River, there were big massive gates that went down to the water. The Lord tells us the whole story. But Babylon said, we shall sit a queen forever. How long did it take for God to overthrow Babylon? One night. How many men were lost? It, it went down without a fight. The engineers of the Persian army diverted the waters of the Euphrates River and marched their army into that city on the, on the bed of the Euphrates River. The gates were left up. God had prophesied it, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45. And Belshazzar is down there toasting his gods with instruments taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Famous last words were found throughout. You know, that's Daniel chapter 5. There's so many things said about that city. They're toasting their gods. And while they're toasting their gods, the city is filling up with Persians and Medes. Okay, do you know this? The speaker of these famous last words. Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Luke chapter 12, a certain rich man. The Lord blessed him so abundantly, he had so much stuff, he didn't have barns to put it in. And so he said those words. And that night, the Lord came to him and said, Thou fool, tonight thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be? Those are sober words. The Bible tells us when we make a business plan, Job chapter, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, when we make a business plan, we are supposed to say, if the Lord will, we shall go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain? Did I leave anything out? The words are, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. The first thing you need for any business plan is your life. The second thing you need is for God to bless your business plan. But you need your life. This man, I'm going to tear these barns down. I'm going to build bigger barns. Then I can take my ease and enjoy my retirement. John 11. Give the Lord a few more minutes. I have yet to speak on behalf of my maker. As Elihu would say. John chapter 11. 
Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse 45 tells us that many of those that saw it believed on him. Verse 46 tells us some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done, raising Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty significant miracle when a man's been dead several days. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. You'd think that'd be enough for them right there to convert and repent. But no, not when the Lord's blinded that nation. If we let him thus alone, these are the famous last words, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away our place and nation. If we leave Jesus alone, the Romans will come and destroy our nation and our place of worship. If we leave Jesus alone, we need to kill him to protect our nation and our temple. I've preached this chapter to you before. Go just a few verses further, and Caiaphas jumps in, and being high priest that year, verse 51, he he says in the last sentence of verse 49, ye know nothing at all. Verse 50, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. If we'll sacrifice Jesus and then tell the Romans that we've got rid of this person that's causing the upheaval in our nation, we can save our nation. We need to get rid of Jesus to save the nation. Do you hear the famous last words? So they got rid of Jesus and Jesus sent the Roman legions to burn up that city and destroy those wicked murderers. And so much of the New Testament and so much of the Old Testament was fulfilled in the events of 70 A.D. when Jesus said there won't be two stones left in this place. They're going to dig a trench around this city and hem you in on every side and lay you even with the ground. Rufus Terentius, the last legion left there, drew a plow across Mount Zion, digging up even the foundations of that city. It appeared as if no one had ever could have lived there when they left it. They said, if we kill Jesus, we'll save our temple and our city. God said, you kill my son and I'll wipe you out, which Jesus had prophesied in the parables and other prophecies of John, Jesus, Malachi, Paul, Peter, and the rest of them leading up to that tremendous event. But notice the famous last words and their reasoning. If we want to save our city, famous last words. They have no idea what's coming down. Jesus and John had warned them repeatedly what was going to happen. And if you'll remember in Matthew 21, which is one of the parables of Jesus explaining the destruction of their city, it says the Pharisees understood that he spake of them. Okay, here's a trickier one. How well do you know your Bible? Yea, for so much. Famous last words. Who spoke those four words? Yea, for so much. Sapphira, wife of Ananias. Ananias and Sapphira had agreed when they sold a possession. It was a land possession. It was real estate. And they brought some of the money and laid it at the apostles' feet and told them, we sold our property and we brought it just like Barnabas that you can read about in Acts chapter 4. And now they had agreed that they were going to do this. And Ananias brought it. And he's the first one confronted by Peter. Did you sell your land for this much? Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not given the exact words of Ananias. He falls down dead. The young men come in, carry him out, put him in the church cemetery. About an hour later, the Bible tells us, Sapphira comes in, walks up to Peter, 
And Peter says, Sapphira, did you sell your land for such and such an amount? Yea, for so much. Famous last words. She fell down dead. And the young men came in and carried her out and put her in the church cemetery. Oh Lord, let us be careful with our mouths that we do not speak unadvisedly, but that we are very careful about what we say. We shall stand in judgment for every idle word, foolish words, filthy words, and jesting. Help us, Lord. How about this one? It is the voice of a God and not of a man. Are those famous last words? To Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12. He's giving a speech in Caesarea and the audience there that wanted him to be a helper to their cities and country. It's the voice of a God. And Herod didn't give God the glory. And he was smitten by an angel of the Lord, eaten of worms, and gave up the ghost. Josephus records the event and tells us he lived in horrible torment for five days after being struck with worms, after being struck and having an internal disease that was horrible for five days. Famous last words. When we're praised, God gets the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, What do you have or what are you that you did not receive? We want to give God the glory for everything that we are and everything that we have because it's all from Him. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 5. This is the last one. Acts chapter 5. Oh Lord, cause the hearers and cause me to always put our trust in Thee. And though our enemies might say great and terrible things, blasphemous things, haughty things, and they may have the numbers, and they may have the power, they may have the might, they may have the intellect, let us put our trust in Thee, for You have all in all. Acts chapter 5 and verse 28 Peter and John are preaching in the city of Jerusalem. They've been already warned in Acts chapter 3 and 4, and here they're being warned again in Acts chapter 5, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now those aren't famous last words. This is a description here of what's taking place 50 days after the Lord was crucified, 60, 70 days after the Lord was crucified. When Jesus Christ was on trial for his life, and Pilate spoke of not wanting to put to death a man with innocent blood, the Jews screamed out, these rabid haters of God and of his son Jesus Christ, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and our children. Have you read that in your gospel accounts? His blood be on us and our children. Then, 50 days later, they're whining in Acts chapter 5 because Peter and John are preaching and saying that ye with wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory. And they said, what are you trying to do? You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I thought they had said... His blood be on us and on our children. And here they are whining about it. Now were they held accountable for the blood of the Son of God? Indeed they were. Those Roman legions that I spoke of a few minutes ago came and leveled that city and destroyed those murderers. According to the Lord's... I'm using the Lord's words from His parables in Matthew chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 22. His blood be on us and on our children. And it was. When Jesus was going up Calvary's hill... There were women weeping there. And he said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. 
Weep for yourselves and for your children. Because the days are coming that you will not believe. If they have done this in a green tree, what do you think they're going to do in a dry? If in prosperous times, when, when the presence of God is in this city and there's miracles being performed, they're doing this to the Son of God, what will they do when the Spirit of God is out of this city and they have been turned over to the Romans? And the Jews killed more among themselves in the seditious fighting that was going on in Jerusalem than even the Roman armies did. But 1.1 million died in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It absolutely dwarfs, dwarfs any other military success or disaster in the histories and annals of military history of the world so that the Lord's words were fulfilled. There shall be greater tribulation on this city than the world had ever seen or ever will see for the blood of the Son of God. Those were terrible last words for them to scream out, His blood be on us and on our children. We never need to fear any arrogant or blasphemous words of men, for God's going to have the last laugh over them all. We never need to fear man. We had better make sure that we do not open our mouths with any proud or foolish words. Let's hate idle words, foolish words, filthy words, and jesting words. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming from heaven soon, and here's how... The prophet Enoch described it. And these are my final words. Jude, verses 15 and 16. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. False teachers, false Christians, carnal Christians, Jesus Christ is coming with ten thousands of his saints to wreak vengeance upon them for their hard speeches, speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. When you read in the papers, on the internet, wherever you hear or see the, the blasphemous things that are being said against God, against his word, against his church, against his preachers, against the institutions that he ordained, Enoch prophesied the seventh from Adam about what has yet to occur, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ coming from heaven direct vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of them will be in the churches of Jesus Christ, just like that passage. They are murmurers and complainers. When you murmur, you are lining yourself up with the wicked to be sent to hell and destroyed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you complain about anything in your life, you are lining yourself up with those that would be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be thankful for everything he has given us. He has blessed us more abundantly than any people that have ever lived on this planet. We have the most reason to be thankful. We have the most reason to guard our mouths. Our mouths should be filled with praise and thanksgiving to the God of heaven, our Heavenly Father. He is glorious. They may speak against him, but he is greater than all gods. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.